0: Good morning, church. All right, Uh, we're gonna study God's word, so if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to John chapter three. John chapter three, if you're a guest with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. You came at a great time because we're transitioning into a new series called Connect with God, and we're talking in this series about kind of the basics of how we cultivate a relationship with God, sort of free throws and layups. What are the fundamentals that that enable us to develop and deepen our walk with the Lord. And so it's a unique series in that the the messages in this series are, are informed or organized topically. So we're asking questions like, how do I connect with God in Scripture? That's where we'll be next week. And then the week after, how do I connect with God in prayer? And how can I have assurance of my faith? And how can I discern God's will? So we're asking these really big, really everyday types of questions about how our faith plays out in our lives. And since there's, oftentimes when you ask a question like that, there's not one grandmaster text, one, you know, one-stop-shop text that gives you broad biblical answer to that question. And so in this series, unlike many of our series, uh, we're going to be, flipping through our Bibles, not just diving deeply into one text in particular, but going all over the Bible, so hopefully you can lick your fingers, because we're going to be flipping to a number of different places before we're done as we ask the question we're starting with today is, who is the Holy Spirit? And the reason for starting with this question, who is the Holy Spirit, is very simple, and it's this, apart from the Holy Spirit, there is no connecting with God. So when you combine the series that we just talked through, what is the gospel, and we put our faith in Jesus as fallen sinners, we trust in him, we're reconciled to God, then he gives us his spirit. And so we need the last series, and we need the answer to the question, who is the Holy Spirit, in order for us to meaningfully connect with God, to to pray, to fellowship with him in his word. We need the spirit to open our eyes, to understand what we're reading in God's word. That's his task, that's his assignment, that's the spirit's ministry. And so that's why we start here, with the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And that's exactly what Jesus is driving at in his conversation in John chapter three with this religious leader named Nicodemus. And so if you could get to John three, I'm gonna start reading in verse one. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's, when he's old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, you can't see it, can't enter it, and then he says in verse six, whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit." And so the first point here is the Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit gives life. Jesus says, don't be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, but we need to be born of the Spirit. Here's the problem. It's possible to have some knowledge of God and yet not have real spiritual life. That's a very real possibility. It was a problem in first century Holy Land and it's a problem in 21st century Bible Belt. It's possible to know how to get around in spiritual activities, to know generally what it means to pray, memorize the Lord's Prayer, familiar with passages of Scripture, right? But the mere presence of spiritual activity or even in the case of Nicodemus, the mere presence of spiritual curiosity doesn't mean we actually have a relationship with God. Jesus says the connection we have with God is, is the result of the Spirit's work in the heart. He brings us to life. This is the point in your notes. Before anything else, the Holy Spirit must first make us alive to God. That's his first work. We have to come alive. We don't come into this world alive to God. We come into this world bent in the wrong direction, running away from God, hoping in things other than God. That's our natural condition and so we have to come alive to God. That's what Jesus is discussing with Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's a ruler among the Jews. Jesus refers to him in verse 10 as Israel's teacher. It has the definite article there so you could translate it very literally. Are you the teacher in Israel and yet you don't know this? And so you know, think about Nicodemus. This is This is an authority. This is a guy who, if you're playing Bible trivia, you want him on your team. He is is a master, he is a guru, he is an expert in all things Bible, all things Old Testament. If you're gonna take a class on prayer, you want this guy teaching it. If you're going to a spiritual conference, you want his face on the brochure, you're excited. You see Nicodemus is speaking there. That's what he would have been in the first century. He was the teacher. Israel's great authority, and Jesus Jesus cuts right to the chase, right? So Nicodemus, he pays him in honor that many Pharisees don't pay Jesus. He says, so it's nightfall, I'm coming in secrecy here. I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna be real honest and straightforward with you. We know you're from God. Otherwise, there's no way that you could do the signs and wonders that you're doing. So what's what's the scoop? Give Give me kind of what what the story is on you. And Jesus cuts straight to the chase and he tells him, what do you lack? Here's what you lack. Unless, verse three, look at it, verse three. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And ironically, Nicodemus proves Jesus' point. Jesus says, unless unless you're born again, you can't see it. Nicodemus says, I can't see it. It doesn't make any sense. Verse nine, how can these things be? It doesn't, it doesn't register. Jesus is saying, is this is exactly my point. That's what I said. That's why I said what I said. Unless you're born again, you can't enter it. Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So that phrase, born again, it could be more literally translated, born from above. So it's referring to the origin of where this new birth Emerges, born from above. So Jesus is saying, essentially, Nicodemus, you've been born from below, like everybody else, but if you're to enter the kingdom and see the kingdom, you need to be born from above. You need a heavenly, not just an earthly, you need a heavenly birth. What what does Jesus mean? He means this. Nicodemus, there are no resources down here on earth to make you the new man you need to be if you want to enter and be part of God's kingdom. Those resources aren't here on the planet. There's not some activity that you can do that just triggers this new life. You need to be born from above. It needs to originate somewhere else, not here. Enter the Holy Spirit because Jesus substitutes another phrase, whereas before he was talking about being born from above, being born again, in verse five and six, he says you need to be born of the spirit. Look at verse five. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, this is probably a reference back to the new covenant promise in Ezekiel chapter 36, I will wash my people with pure water and they will be clean and I'll give them a new heart and I'll give them the spirit. Everything will go internal, right? So that's what Jesus is saying. Unless someone is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. And then he uses this analogy in the next verse about the spirit's work in bringing this new life. Look at verse eight. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, so there's the analogy, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What's the significance of what Jesus is driving at with these word pictures? It's here in your notes. We have no ability to give ourselves new birth. That's the significance. We have no ability to give ourselves new birth. New birth comes down. It comes from above. New birth is something the Holy Spirit does when he quickens the dead heart of a sinner and makes us live to God. You carry that analogy forward. It's though so Jesus is saying, the wind isn't under your control. The leaves don't beckon the wind. The leaves don't trigger the wind. The, the wind doesn't obey the desire of the leaves. The wind blows where it will. It blows when it wants to and the leaves get to move when the wind blows. The branch gets to bend when this wind blows. You don't know where it's coming, but when it comes, it leaves an effect that's visible, audible. You can see what's happening when the spirit moves. And he says, that's what it's like when the spirit blows upon the soul of a sinner who's dead in his transgressions and sins. He's basically saying, the new birth is God's work. That's why we can't boast in our salvation. We only boast in him. It's his work. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. That's the same idea that's being driven at in 1 Peter chapter 1, for example, when it says, you have been born again, passive, not you birthed yourself again. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, the quickening, the living and abiding word of God, so you see that dynamic duo that's often running together in scripture is the spirit and the word, proclamation of the truth and the movement of the Holy Spirit on the heart. James says the same thing in James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will he brought us forth through the word of truth. He did it, he brought us from death to life. Christian, you are not spiritually self-generated. You didn't create your own spiritual life any more than you created your own physical life. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Jesus in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. If there is a parable that tells the story of your salvation, it's the parable of Lazarus being raised from the dead. That's essentially your story. In the drama of salvation, you get to be Lazarus. You get to lay there in the tomb and not move and not breathe and keep not moving and keep not breathing and keep being dead in your transgressions and sins and the Holy Spirit gets to make you live powerfully. He enables you by his Power to hear Christ calling your name from outside the tomb. And then you walk out into the light and you believe and your debts are canceled and everything's right between you and God because Jesus died in your place and you have his righteous record that's credited to your account. And so you're set for life and you're set for all eternity. And the Spirit's the one who begins that by opening our eyes, opening our ears to see Jesus is glorious. You see that for the first time and it's the Spirit's work that does that. We could could borrow from Charles Wesley who wrote the great hymn, And Can It Be? In one of the verses, he's talking about this dynamic of what God does to the soul, to the heart. And he's using these metaphors. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flame with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you're a Christian, that's your story. You were in chains, you were dead in sin, light broke in, your eyes were open to see, chains fell off, you didn't break them, they broke. They fell from you. Power of regeneration is a glorious, glorious truth. So how do we know we've been born again? How do we know we have this new life that the Spirit comes to give? How do we hear the wind rustling through the leaves? What's that first sign? To put it very simply, how do you know? You want Jesus whereas you didn't before. Suddenly you want Jesus. Christ, that's that initial sound of the wind blowing through the the leaves. You want Christ. You flip over a few more pages to John chapter 14. So the Holy Spirit gives life, and then point number two the Holy Spirit is a constant companion. Holy Spirit is a constant companion. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor, that that word another meaning another of the same kind, another like the first one. And this counselor will be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. What a sweet promise. I'm coming to you. Skip down to verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, what a promise this is, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So what's going on here in this context? Jesus has been their constant companion, their closest friend to his disciples and Jesus is leaving. He's telling them that he's gonna suffer, he's gonna die, he's going to ascend, he's gonna go away and prepare a place for them but essentially he's going to be gone That's why John 14 through 17 is frequently called the farewell discourse. He's he's setting them up for his departure, but he says that the Father's going to send another counselor, and and that's the word paraclete, so it means an alongsider, someone who will come alongside, who will be just like me, he'll be a companion, he'll be a counselor, he'll be a comforter, he'll come alongside you sent by the Father. Imagine... Imagine the pain of that moment where they're coming to grips with the fact that Jesus is gonna be gone. Imagine what they would miss the most. You just think about that, right? Everywhere Jesus traveled, the word on the street was the same. The word on the street was, no one taught like this man. That's what they said from the moment they first heard him. He was 12 years old. They said, have you heard this kid? Has anyone spoken like him? He has authority. When he speaks, he's 12 years old, but he doesn't sound like the scribes and the religious leaders and the Pharisees. You want to listen to everything he's saying. It's like wisdom's pouring off his tongue. You want to lean in and listen to what he's saying. A woman meets him at the well, this Jesus at the well in John chapter 4, and minutes later, she's running through town saying, you have to meet this man I just spoke to. You won't believe what he told me. Just absolutely contagious, the things that he said, his words they said are spirit and life. He taught them all along the way. This was such a special relationship he had with his disciples, so he taught publicly to the crowds, but then he gave special intimate counsel, understanding, backstory to his disciples, and he taught them along the way. He plucked grain and taught them about the Sabbath, right, he washed their feet in John chapter 13, and while he's washing, he's talking, he's teaching all along the way. He hears them arguing about who's the greatest. He's teaching them all along the way through in the context of friendship and companionship, and he's teaching them. No one spoke like Jesus spoke. And now he's leaving. And so Jesus says, let me just let you know, the next one who's coming, he's gonna teach you all things, He's gonna be the consummate teacher. It's gonna be better that I go. He's gonna teach you all things and he's gonna remind you of everything I ever told you. Verse 26, he will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Think about the significance of that. Because the Holy Spirit taught those apostles all things and reminded them of everything Jesus taught them, We have the New Testament. He reminded the apostles of everything Jesus told them. He taught them all things until we have these authoritative words because the Holy Spirit was directing, superintending the work of the apostles to give us the divinely inspired pages that are in front of us. That's how the Holy Spirit, by the way, teaches you and me today. He opens our eyes. He points us to Christ. He reminds us of everything that Christ taught, he opens our minds to understand the scriptures, that's how he works in our lives, he's our teacher, this is in your notes, he's our teacher and our counselor. You take time to study the role of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus, you talk about a fascinating study to see the way Jesus experienced, leaned on, and had the Holy Spirit as his constant companion. You know, we sing the song, what a friend we have in Jesus, it's so true, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. That's so true. Have you ever thought about this? What a friend Jesus had in the Holy Spirit. His constant companion who hovered over him at his conception, who was there at his baptism, who walked with him into the wilderness to face hell coming against the Savior, who walked with him in his rejection all along the way who empowered him for ministry, for mission, right? And here, here's Jesus at almost the end of his earthly ministry. Flip over to John chapter 16. Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry and you can almost sense excitement, at least about this part. The hour that he's facing is grave and sobering and yet there's almost excitement in his voice in verse seven. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away. Some translations have, it's to your advantage. It's for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. This is almost Jesus saying, you're gonna have to trust me on this one. I know it doesn't make any sense that it gets better when I leave. Trust me, if you knew the Holy Spirit who's gonna be sent to you, you'd believe me, it gets better when I leave because if I don't go, I don't get to send him but if I go, I get to send him and it's gonna be, Amazing, this companion who walked with the Savior himself is the very one who's sent to walk with you. How often we underestimate that reality. We have the same companion the Savior had himself. So he's our teacher and counselor, but he also, next point, he gives us power to live a holy life. Turn to Romans chapter eight if you would. Romans 8, he gives us power to live a holy life. So the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, among other things, is talking about life in the spirit. He's talking about what that means for the believer. This is the chapter, we heard it a moment ago, where Paul says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you believers and dwells in believers in such a way that there is new power, there's new power potential for change. There's a work of transformation that can be underway now. We're not just talking about outward codes of conduct, slapping stone tablets on one another. It's not just the law of Moses. It's, it's new covenant. We're talking about change that's operating from the inside out. It's totally new. Verse 8, look at verse 8. Chapter 8, verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If your heart was bent in the wrong direction. Notice though. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. In other words, if you've put your trust in Christ, you do have the Spirit. You're not locked in the flesh anymore. You have the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. In other words, the Spirit comes with an agenda. The Holy Spirit is here to make us holy The Spirit of Christ is here to make us like Christ. It's what He does, it's part of His name. He's making us different. I love verse 12. Look at verse 12. You are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That should be such a faith booster for us as Christians. In other words, it doesn't have to look the way it did before. You're God's now. You're you're a son in the royal house, You're you're not a slave in Satan's sweatshop, he can't jerk your chain the way he could before the lights came on, before you came alive to God. Everything can change, there's a new power operative in the soul working in you now, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Working in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Paul is saying, when you were in the flesh, you were completely incapable of pleasing God, but you're no longer in the flesh. You're in the spirit. It's like he's trying to say, you couldn't move a muscle to please God before, but try it now. Try it now. See if anything feels different. You have the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's our teacher and a counselor. He gives us power to live a holy life. Next, He He helps us in trials. Stay there in Romans chapter 8. He helps us in trials. This has gotta be one of the sweetest passages in all of scripture for weary believers. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself we'll also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, we ourselves, who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience in the same way, here's an application point he's saying, the spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. How great are those words. The spirit also helps. There's a big difference between talk and help, isn't there? The Spirit also helps, right? This isn't isn't merely instruction lobbed over the banister of heaven into the life of the believer. This is help from God the Holy Spirit and it's coming to weak people. It's coming for us. There's help from God's spirit for the weary, for the weak. The word help is such a fascinating word. Paul takes two prepositions and a verb and just crunches them together. The first preposition means with or together. The second one means opposite. And then the verb means to take up. And so he's just crushing these terms together to give you this idea of help. If you've ever moved something that's way too heavy with the help of another person who was stronger than you were and they take the heavy end. That's sort of the picture that Paul is going after with this word help in Romans chapter eight. There's something too heavy for the Christian in Romans eight and here comes the help. He also helps us. He throws his shoulder under our, under our burden. He helps, so, you know, here's the thing. You back up, you read Romans eight, it can sound like such a sweet verse about groanings and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. From the inside, maybe you've experienced this before, from the inside, praying with groanings in this way in a Romans eight type of prayer feels terrible. You You ever pray and you can hardly form an articulate sentence? You don't even know what to ask for. You are so upside down. You are completely toppling. You can't form the next sentence. And, and maybe you're even thinking in that moment, if you're experiencing that Romans 8 type of moment, you're thinking, I don't know that this even counts for praying. Frankly, it's just crying in God's direction. That's, that's what I'm doing. This, surely this doesn't even equal or amount to prayer, and the helper comes, and all all our desperate, right, messy ramblings he takes. And it's as though in that moment while we're groaning, the Spirit says, Father, here's what Matt needs. And then he prays according to the will of God. He perfectly intercedes for you, for me, when we can't figure out what to say next. We just, it's almost as though the Spirit says, you just keep groaning and I'll do the rest. <laughs> you keep groaning and I'll, I'll do the heavy lifting, right? I'll take the heavy end. You, you groan in God's general direction. I'll lift the heavy side. The help comes to us as believers. Eugene Peterson's paraphrased rendition of Romans 8, 26 and 27 says this. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. We don't know how or what to pray, it's, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. This, friends, is our faithful companion, the Holy Spirit sent to walk with us in suffering, walk with us in trial. So the Holy Spirit gives life, he's our constant companion, And third, the Holy Spirit empowers us for ministry. The Holy Spirit empowers us for ministry. If you would turn to Luke chapter four. Luke's gospel, chapter four. So Jesus comes on the scene full of the Holy Spirit. The prophets Centuries earlier said when this Messiah comes, you'll recognize him because the spirit will rest upon him, the spirit of counseling and counsel and understanding, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, look for that one. When he comes, you'll be clothed with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, this is his very first message, his very first sermon. And look what happens in verse 17, Luke chapter four, verse 17 scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. And then he reads this portion from Isaiah's prophecy hundreds of years earlier. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, verse 20, he then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began by saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. In other words, I'm here to do all of that and to do it in the power of the spirit. He was the foretold, long-promised, Spirit-anointed Messiah. And he's saying, I'm here to do this. That text is Jesus essentially picking a fight. He's announcing in advance all the enemy territory he's about to plunder. Essentially, that's what he's doing, right? In a sense, he's saying to Satan, eyes and ears that you've closed, I'm starting, I'm gonna start opening. Starting today, I'm gonna start opening eyes you've kept shut, ears you've kept shut. I'm gonna break people out of prisons you've held them in for way too long. That starts today because the Spirit is on me to do that. Spirit empowers the Savior himself to advance the mission. Everything Jesus needed to accomplish his task, he had because he was full of the Spirit. That's what that first sermon means. You think about that for us, apart from the Holy Spirit, There will be no success in gospel mission. There will be no success in gospel ministry apart from the Holy Spirit. We rely on ourselves, we get nothing. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that's all you get. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He can do the intangibles. He can do the stuff on the inside of the heart and the life. You talk about a cool Bible study exercise go read through your Bible. Maybe just start in Luke's gospel. Keep reading through Acts and just keep keep going. And look at the verbs and the nouns that hang out with the phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. There's stuff that hangs out together and they keep hanging out together, right? So you see, for example, patterns of this relationship between Spirit's fullness, which leads to or triggers Spirit-inspired speech. People are filled with the Spirit, they start talking. They start telling the truth They start prophesying, there's this relationship, the spirit comes in fullness and people open their mouths and start declaring truth. So Gospel of Luke, for example, Luke chapter one, John the Baptist, they're prophesying. What's gonna happen with John the Baptist? Here's what's gonna happen, he's gonna be filled with the spirit and will turn many to the Lord. How? By opening his mouth and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that's how. He'll preach repentance and he'll turn many to the Lord. He's full of the spirit, opens his mouth, Many turn to the Lord. Same chapter, Luke chapter one. Elizabeth is filled with the spirit. She opens her mouth. She blesses Mary. She prophesies about the child. Same chapter. Zachariah is filled with the spirit, opens his mouth, prophesies. Come over to the book of Acts chapter one, this big one, all define, defining term in Acts chapter one, verse eight. What's gonna happen? Stay in Jerusalem. Here's what happens next. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what'll happen you'll be my witnesses, you'll open your mouth, you'll start saying things, and the nations will start turning to me. That's what's gonna happen. Spirit comes in fullness, people start talking, disciples start opening their mouths to share good news. Come over to Acts chapter two, disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and declared God's greatness in languages they had never learned before. Acts chapter four, disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word with boldness. You see that relationship over and over, filled with the Spirit, mouth open, truth pouring out, prophecy, gospel, right? This dynamic relationship between the presence of the Spirit and the proclamation of the Word. They're running alongside, they're hanging out with each other all throughout the Bible. In other words, the same Spirit, this is in your notes, who gives us life, sends us as life givers. The same Spirit who gives us life, sends us as life givers. Givers, you back up one more time, you see that phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, and it brings all kinds of other things with it too. Acts chapter 6, you see men who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. So those two run together. Fullness of the Spirit runs with wisdom. Acts chapter 11, Barnabas is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Keep reading, Acts chapter 13, the disciples are full of the Holy Spirit and joy. So there are these attitudes of the heart, these instincts of the heart, this outgoing faith, upward faith, joy in Christ. This is produced by the Spirit. You keep reading in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, the, the church there's full of the Holy Spirit, overflowing with the Holy Spirit, and what happens next? They open their mouths, they start singing to each other singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to the Father, open mouths, praise toward God, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All kinds of freaky, awesome things happen when the Spirit comes upon his people in power. So full of the Holy Spirit, what does that look like for us as believers? What does it look like for us as a local church? full of the Holy Spirit, we're called to be Christ-exalting, gospel-telling, grace-displaying, humbly submitting, wisdom-saturated, joy-radiating disciples of Jesus Christ. He fills us, our mouths open, and out comes praise toward God, encouragement toward others, a message of salvation for the world. It's the instinct of the heart. that's full of God's Spirit. So what do we do? So so Brook Hills, a few takeaways for us to think about before we go. Four things. Number one, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. The Spirit's first work is to open our eyes to see Jesus and to run to Him. That's His first work. We can't run around Jesus and get to the Holy Spirit. You know, if if the Holy Spirit sounds like the fun one in the Trinity, you know, like he's spiritual and like all kinds of weird and cool things happen. Jesus is more angular. You know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe you're not into that. There's no running around Jesus to get to the Holy Spirit. Everything hinges on what we do with Jesus. That's where it all starts. That's why he said, I'm the door. You want to get to God, you come through me. It's the only way to get to God. All the promises of God are wrapped up in Christ. They're all opened when we are in Christ, unity in in Christ. And so you put your faith in Jesus and all the boxes start opening. And one of those boxes is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's, It's wrapped up in Jesus. We believe in Christ. And so if you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never believed the gospel, that's where we start. Let's start right there. Turn from whatever it is you're hoping in right now Whatever it is you've been running after, put your trust in Jesus. He's the only one who died to save you. No other savior is coming. He's the hope of the world. There is no other hope in this world except in Christ. Run to him, he went to the cross to bear your sins, to bear your condemnation so you never have to taste judgment. Put your faith in him, judgment's gone. Forgiveness is yours, eternal life is yours. Start there, believe the gospel. Two, trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. What's his promise? That if you've trusted in Christ, you have the spirit. There's not some special hoop you need to jump through. There's not some special spiritual exercise you find out from somebody and then you get the promised help. Promised help is yours. You believe in Jesus, it's yours. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. I read this several years ago from an author named Fred Sanders. He teaches at Biola University. I found this so helpful and I keep going back to it. He said this, our great Need as gospel believing Christians is to be led further into what we already have. Let me read that again. Our great need as gospel believing Christians is to be led further into what we already have. Here's a hymn that was written several years ago and it talks about contemplating the truth of God's promises in the gospel. So don't let fretting and anxiety take over your heart and your life, and what does it tell you to do? It says, think what spirit dwells within you. Think what Father's smile is thine. Think that Jesus died to win you. Meditate on that truth, what you already have in Jesus. These indicatives fuel our response to God, our obedience to God, so study. Romans chapter eight. Study 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 and and let God's word lead you further into what you already have in Christ. Third, lean on God's spirit. Lean on God's spirit. So what is that area of your Christian life where you're trying to muscle it out on your own? You're leaning on your own strength. Do you... Do you think of the Holy Spirit regularly? Do you think of the Holy Spirit as your constant companion throughout the day? Today, starting now, and then wake up tomorrow morning thinking, I have a constant companion. I can ask for wisdom I don't have. I can ask for power. I can ask for victory. I can ask for purity. I can ask for perseverance. I can ask for fresh faith to come pouring into my soul. Holy Spirit, give me. Give me what I don't have. That's a a request I've been praying a lot lately, carrying with me throughout the day. Holy Spirit, please give me what I don't have. Walking into a meeting, walking into a counseling situation, driving on the way from work to home, give me what what I don't have. Give me what I need. Cultivate a consciousness of the Spirit's presence in your life. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers in the 1800s, We have six steps to get from the floor up here. He had 15 steps. And every time his foot went to a new step, all 15 steps to mount the pulpit at Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, every new step, all 15 steps, he was saying quietly in his head, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. He can do what I can't do. He can bring us to life. He can change our hearts through his word. He's just saying that, I believe it, I believe it, consciously depending on God's spirit. Fourth and finally, play offense, not just defense. Play offense, not just defense. So you don't have the spirit just for yourself. This is not to take away from the point that I just made. To don't erase that point. You do have them for yourself, but not just for yourself. So walk the block and pray the spirit moves in power. All right? we talked about this when we were praying earlier on with with Tyson Gordon. Rock the block and see what God's spirit does. Put the real Jesus on the map in your neighborhood. Try some new venture of faith, some new risk of faith. Start a conversation about Jesus this week. Start start a Bible study at the office. Do something new. Ask, Ask for accountability in that area that you've been hiding, you've been afraid to confess, right? Strike up a conversation. Own up to the wrong you've brought or contributed to an unreconciled relationship. Do something. Sign up for a short-term trip. Take the gospel somewhere else in the world. Try something you can't can't do in your own strength. That's how we prove. We're leaning into the Holy Spirit. We're not just trying stuff we've tried before and that we can pull off on our own. Leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit. Who knows? You think about this. Who knows what God may do Through a Christian who is not limited by what our own resources provide, our own power. But a Christian or a church that believes in our heart and soul, it is not by might, it is not by power, it is by His Spirit. Greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Do we believe that?